always wanted us to have a memorable boardroom. My first boardroom was an ambulance, which I bought for 350 quid on the Caledonian Road, stripped it out, put a table in, spray painted it red. We were like your emergency service, that was the gimmick. And let's give a big, big round of applause to Mr. Andrew Block. Woo, 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 woo. Here he is. He's come this way. Hey, buddy, how are you? Great to see you, my man. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone. That's yours, my man. Thank you very much. There's a coffee for you. Thank you. Andrew, it's great to have you, my man. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you after quite a few years. I know. It's been a few years now. Been a while. Have I got better looking with age or not? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> got worse. <laughs> now, I've kind of um, teed Andrew up for this question, so I'm hoping he's going to give me the right answer. So, who is your favourite Apprentice winner of all time? Joseph. Yeah, just favorite. give him a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. There you go. I can yes, go now. I knew. I knew it was me. Okay, fantastic. So, Andrew, um, the business owners in the room have worked with us uh, mostly um, with the Trade Mastermind, and that's been helping them to grow their business, build their business knowledge. The Millionaire Mastermind is now about taking that to the next level by learning how to build wealth. And, and brand is a big part of that. You know, if you want to sell your business or exit your business or create new connections and so on. So um, uh, I really want you to let people in the room know what really is PR and what does it mean for small businesses? Sure. Um, PR is like an incredibly difficult thing to explain. And even, you know, having been doing it for 25, 30 years, it's, it's hard to explain. Essentially, it's how you communicate with your audiences. And if I was talking to you 10 years ago, I'd say the difference between PR and advertising or other forms of marketing is PR is earned media, i.e. you don't pay for it. And that's why it's so powerful, because it's an independent endorsement for your business. Where the world has moved on and changed is now PR encompasses everything. So digital media, social you can now communicate directly with your customers, which before the advent of Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is you choose to use to communicate, you couldn't really do that. So in a lot of ways, PR is more powerful than ever. And it's changed unrecognizably, really, since I started my career in the days of you know, not even having an email address. Um, the beauty now is you can reach your audience and you can reach tens of thousands, millions of people at the click of a button in seconds. That's not the challenge for business owners. The challenge for business owners is not how to reach them, it's how to get them to sit up and take notice. And when I founded my PR business in 2000, we trademarked this word, talkability. And it was my belief at the time, and it's still my belief, today that the best form of marketing that you can do is when other people are essentially doing your marketing for you. Um, and to create talkability, you have to get people to sit up and take notice. And the fight now is not the fight to reach people, it's the fight for attention. And as you know, you know whatever your business, whatever size your business is, from a one-man band through to a multinational corporation, 
you're competing with so much noise. And, and you know this, on the way to come to this room today, you will have been bombarded with advertising, everything from ads on the tube, ads on steps as you walk up the tube, bus stop ads, stuff in your Twitter feed, stuff on your Instagram feed. You kind of put up these bullshit buffers and just deflect it. You don't even take any notice to it. The stuff you notice is the stuff that resonates, the stuff that gets through. So what I try and help my clients with is defining how it is they can get noticed and what it is that's going to help them stand out and make a difference to their business. And if you can get it right, obviously I'm a bit biased, but I believe PR is critical to any business if they're going to be successful, and that's what I try and help people do. Yeah, amazing. And, um, you know, I know you know Charlie Mullins um, as well, and we were just talking about him um, on the break. But when he came to the shard, he said, um, it's not can you afford to have PR, it's can you afford to not have PR. Um, and I've heard him say that quite a few times. And do you think uh, a small business needs to dedicate a budget towards um, getting um, more press? Yes, is the short answer. Mm -hmm. But the longer answer is doesn't necessarily take money mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know if you're a big business you can afford to hire someone like me not everyone can afford to do that mm -hmm. and there's ways you can do it on your own if I look at Charlie and the business that he built up he was a plumber what was different to what he did compared to what all of you guys do what any other plumber does he created a brand if you think back to what I just said about talkability you know I remember the first thing I ever saw with his business was the number plates on the vans all the vans were really nicely branded you know looked a bit like the 18 van They're a bit different to everything out there they were walking adverts for his business on the road but then each one had that sort of funny number plate which was you know T-O-1-L-E-T or whatever yeah, he ran out of gags in the end but mm. he's got a good collection who's of seen those number plates in the room yeah, so they've had a massive impact. Has a massive impact, very, very clever. And then what he's done more recently is built himself as a personal brand. And he's a big character. I think people look up to him as an entrepreneur. He's a boy done good. And generally, you know, like with Joseph, like with the Lord Sugar, people respect self-made success stories. Um, but he's put himself much more front and centre now. I mean, and the thing is at a different stage is just as you know, sold his business for a decent amount and is enjoying life and all the stuff that goes with being rich and famous. So he's kind of on a different journey mm -hmm. now and I'm not sure what his business agenda is anymore, but is enjoying himself and doing a lot of great work for charity. And I was saying to Joseph, we were at an event last, I was with him last week at Variety Club. His fiance was there singing. Mm -hmm. He's having the time of his life, hanging out with Simon Cowell, Naomi Campbell, you know, for a plumber. He's done good, he has, so yeah. good for him, and I, I love that. And I, I do sometimes get a bit frustrated. I think just British media, British mindset, there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of people that are sort of bitter about success. We don't celebrate it in the same way that, for example, American culture celebrates mm -hmm. success, and he's putting two fingers up and saying, fuck you, you know, this <laughs> is what you can do with a bit of money, and fine, not everyone wants to do that, but he, that's his style and he's true to his brand. And is, you know, the key to any sort of personal PR is authenticity. And you have to be yourself. You can't build a personal brand 
pretending to be something that you're not. You have mm -hmm. to stick to your values. Sometimes you have to sit back and figure out what those values are. Um, and they should align with your business. So if your message is around value or if it is around service, um, stick to that and align that to who you are as a person, why it's important. People buy people, they don't buy businesses. If you think about the most successful brands in the world, generally there is a CEO at the helm and people buy into those values. It can also be dangerous because a single person can bring down a brand, but when you get it right, it's super powerful. And not everyone is a Joseph that wants a video videographer and wants to be on Instagram 24 seven. It's just not, if I look at myself, that's not my style. I don't like being front and center of anything, but it's important that people buy into me and what I'm capable of doing. So when I had my own company, I hid behind the company a little bit. So I was talking about the work that the company was doing. When I sold my company and a couple of years ago sort of moved into building my own consultancy, it was much more difficult because I had my name above the door and I just felt, I don't know, a bit shy. I'm quite introvert. I like making other people famous and successful and getting successful off the back of that, but kind of in the background. Um, so I just found my own way of doing that, which was just talking about what I was doing, not in a show-offy way, almost in a kind of understated way, but helping add value by educating people in terms of what I was doing so that they could relate and apply that to themselves and also celebrating other people's success. I think sometimes we're not that generous with our praise and recognition for other people. So I've always tried to applaud other people's successes and also keep my gob shut if I don't agree with something, if I think something's bad or wrong, call it karma, I don't know what, call it me just being a nice person, I don't know what, I'd, I don't like to go out there and criticise other people, especially when they're having a hard time, I don't think it's a nice thing to do, to sort of kick people when they're down or criticise people when you don't know the, the full story, so my, my company was called Frank, it was about being open, honest, no bullshit, straight to the point, that was sort of a reflection of my personal values, it's why we called the company that, and I just... I didn't even try to stay true to it, I just did stay true to it because that's who I was and what I was all about. And in a world where there was, yeah, there, the same as with all of you guys, there is, no, there is an oversupply of what you do. There's no shortage of competitors, there's no shortage of um, other people that clients can go to, customers can go to in your place. So you have to stand for something and give people a reason to want to work with you versus others and that's about a repetition of reminding people what it is about your company that's great and it's not about trying to say all things to everyone my view would always be focus on one thing and hammer it home consistently so in the case of my PR agency it was about creativity cut through ideas that generated this talkability that I talked about and that is all I talked about. Of course we could do everything. And when I started my company, as any business owner, I was so proud, so proud. And people would come into the office and I'd go, look, you know, we've got 12 light switches and look at that fitting and look at our desks and look at the font. And no one gives a shit. You know, like no one cares about your business like you care about your business. And it took an external consultant to say to me one day, you're boring. Like you're, you're just, 
no one cares about. They just want to know what you can do for them. And just focus on that. And focus on how you do it, why you do it, what you're doing. And from that moment on, I learned quite a valuable lesson. And we were just single-minded. You know, there's 50,000 PR agencies out there. There's a much smaller number that focus on consumer PR. There's a much smaller number that focus on great creative PR. And that was my niche. And all of a sudden, from competing with 50,000 people, 50,000 companies of all different shapes, sizes, scales, we were in this sort of subset of maybe, I don't know, a dozen agencies that had a reputation for great creative PR. And that was a game changer for me, because we were, you know, and, and I mean, to be fair, to this day, when anyone phones me up, I still feel humble and flattered and how did they find me? Why do they want to work with me versus anyone else? But that stayed true the whole way through, has stayed true the whole way through my career. But I realized that the reason why they're phoning is I've got their attention somehow. Um, and I've done that by them knowing what it is that I can do. Which also means lots of people don't phone, and that's fine as well. You can't cater for everyone. And I think if you try and please everyone, win everything, go after every single bit of business that could be there, you're going to lose because you spread yourself too thin. But if you focus on where the wins are and go all out for that, that's what made the difference to my business. Amazing, good stuff. And do you think that every business owner should be building a personal brand alongside their corporate brand? And you know, if you're building a business with a view to exit, you know, you exited Frank and then as you said, you then set up your own consultancy. So almost you've got to do that work again, haven't you, to reestablish. Obviously you've got the credibility and you're very well known from what you achieved with the corporate brand. But do you wish, I'm kind of merging, blurring the question a little bit, but do you wish that you'd built more of a personal brand alongside the corporate brand so when you exited the business, you already had that more established? And would you recommend it? It's a really good question, and I think it depends on you and mm -hmm. your personality. Mm -hmm. For me, as I said, I was always comfortable, sort of... I was still the front person, but I was always talking about my business and celebrating the work of the business and other people within the business. The thing about my industry, which is maybe different to a lot of the businesses in this room, it is a people business. So, you know, to cut a very long and boring story short, when I sold my business went through a earnout period. At the end of that earnout period, the owners who are an Australian PLC sort of thought, fuck, we're gonna lose the two key people that are the heartbeat of this company. And then I ended up doing a deal where they gave us 25% of the business back to stay. Um, and that, I guess a lot of that is down to the personal brand, but it's, it's it is dependent on the business. So do you need to be front and center? Do you need to be that face of the business? You don't have to be. It's a point of difference. You know, going back to that Charlie Mullins story, like, I mean, I, I haven't followed his story in depth. You probably know it better than I do. But what I remember is the vans, the premium service, the funny number plates. That's how he did it. I don't remember him being, sort of knew his name, but. I don't remember him being their front and centre. Think about someone like a Richard Branson. You know he is the heart of Virgin. But actually, if you look at Virgin Airlines, Virgin Trains, Virgin Holidays, Virgin Insurance, Virgin etc., you know, it's, has he got much to do with it? Not really. He provides a seal of credibility, but they built the Virgin brand to stand for something 
which is about being a challenger brand, taking on the big boys, doing things a bit differently, a bit disruptive. So it's a combination of the two. And sometimes, you've got to remember, not everyone is going to like you. So you know, you've built your personal mm -hmm. brand. You've got your fans. You've got your haters. Mm -hmm. You've got thick skin. You can deal with that. It's done you more good than it's done you harm. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit more retiring. I'm definitely more vanilla in terms of the way that I would mm -hmm. promote myself. I don't think I offend anyone, mm -hmm. but perhaps I don't win as many fans or clients or customers, whatever you want to call them, by being a bit on the fence. Mm -hmm. and, but that's my job, I think, is to be in the background. It's, my job is to make other people famous, other businesses mm -hmm. famous. Sure, I want to build my own business, but I've got to be careful that I'm not bigger than the yeah, businesses that I'm representing. And it's about how comfortable you feel. So if you're sitting there thinking, that's not me, I can't do that. There are other routes, you don't have to do it. But people do. People buy people, not businesses. So I think what a lot of people find hard in business, and I've come across this challenge a lot I personally, is knowing when to build your business brand and when to build your personal brand and trying to separate yourself as the personality that you are versus the, the personality that you want to try and appear to be. I think that, you know, from the, my apprentice experience, I was quite rough and ready when I went onto the show mm. and that kind of won the hearts of people. But then afterwards, I tried to try to change my style to, appear, to try and be this corporate type person which didn't really fit who I wanted to be. Yeah. And now I'm a lot more me in my personal brand, but I would say I spent too, mu I'm, I spent too much time doing Impra throughout my 20s and not enough building my personal. And my biggest regret is that when Impra goes, yeah, in whatever way you exit, that you then have, then all the equity of building that brand goes with it. Yeah. So then you've got to re-establish it. So. Yeah, and there's no right answer. I mean, mm -hmm. I think any business from day one needs to have a vision of where they want to go to and mm -hmm. what they want to achieve. And then you figure out how much do I want to be a part of that? There's plenty of successful businesses which don't have a founder, mm -hmm. especially in construction businesses like most of you in this room you know you don't have to have that face and if it's something you're not comfortable with you you don't have to do it mm -hmm. um, but it can be a very powerful strategy and um, like look at someone like Stephen Bartlett who uh, I guess most of you know who he is I mean he's in the same industry as me he started his business about seven years after I started mine um, when I've talked to him about personal branding, mm -hmm. he said to me, I, I watched businesses like yours build brands and differentiate themselves. And I felt we were sitting in his organization, Social Chain, and we were doing the traditional new business, which is hard, you know, sending out emails, making phone calls. And to be honest, that was always my fear. I never wanted to do that. He never wanted to do that. But he was, unlike me, young, good-looking, good personality, and he put himself front and centre, and he decided, I'm going to ditch my entire new business department, and I'm going to put that money into having a video crew follow me around 24-7. And he had a crew with him for two years, seven days a week, night and day, and I'm not exaggerating, that's what he did. And he pumped out content, pumped out content, and... Last time I bumped into him, he said to me something really interesting was people would come into my office 
and I'd already won the business. They were taking photos, they wanted selfies. And I, I sort of never had really, had never really thought about it, but when people came into my business, they weren't taking photos with me, that would be a bit weird. Um, but they were taking photos of the office and I was seeing tweets saying like, we're at Frank, mm -hmm. so exciting. And they'd come into our boardroom and one of the things I would always do to create talkability, because I was aware that clients would come into you know, five different boardrooms when you were pitching for a bit of business and then by the end of the day, they'd forgotten who said what, who did what. I always wanted us to have a memorable boardroom. My first boardroom was an ambulance, which I bought for 350 quid on the Caledonian Road stripped it out, put a table in, spray painted it red. We were like, your emergency service, that was the gimmick. Next <laughs> boardroom, we created a beach, because I always felt like when you're on a beach, you're at your most relaxed and chilled, and that's where you have your best creative ideas. So our whole boardroom was a beach, and you'd put Frank-branded flip-flops on as a bloke. I never thought of the logistics of women wearing tights and what happened when you lost your pen lid in the sand and all these sort of things, <laughs> but it worked. People remembered it. Um, next one was like a giant bedroom. There was no real logic behind that. I just thought it'd be cool to have like massive beds and this whole place was sort of themed like the supper club in Amsterdam, if you've ever been there, just without the drugs and women. <laughs> um, and then the last office um, was fairground waltzers and it was all just a bit of a play on spin and PR. And so we had these big Frank branded waltzers, but people would come into this boardroom and 95% of them absolutely loved it. They were taking photos, they were saying how brilliant it was. I'd see it on Instagram everywhere. You'd get the odd one that would walk in and just think, is this some sort of joke? Like, are you children? Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> and that's fine, because you can't be all things to all people. But we're going back to Stephen Bartlett, you know, he built his business off a personal brand. Yeah. And actually, you know, the business that he's now exited and is not that bothered about, or as bothered about, you know, has suffered from him not being at the helm, mm -hmm. but he's built that brand, like you said, and he's been able to go on and achieve such great su success and now is a kind of celebrity in his own right and he loves it. But a lot of the guys um, that I've met over the years that have built, have, have built kind of personal brands within their businesses then exited, it ends up being an asset to them because much like you, um, the business suffers and then they either end up buying it back at a very cheap price or they get um, given a load more money to stay on or they get given equity. Um, I was at uh, Charlie's apartment about a year ago when we were doing this podcast and he was saying, yeah, they've taken it over, but I don't think they're going to run it right. And I think it's going to go down and then I'm going to buy it back for a lot less in the next couple of years. So it can be an asset to you as well um, yeah. uh, if you want the business back. Some people just want to exit and not do it. But a lot of the business owners in the room are in construction. And, um, you know, what really excites me about the construction market, and we've proven it with the trade mastermind as a niche, is that the marketplace really isn't built on brand. It's built on service businesses. You don't really know who's operating within the marketplace. And the reason somebody like a Charlie or an emperor can grow so big, so, well, not so quickly in Charlie's case, he did it over 40 years. But the reason it becomes the unicorn and it's the one that everybody knows is, yes, because he's doing a fantastic job at PR, but also that everybody else in the marketplace isn't doing any PR. So when you're the only show in town, it's not that difficult to build the best brand, is it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you haven't got any competition. So this is what excites me for everyone in the room is about investing in their brand because they've got no one to compete with. Yeah, no, that's right. Oh, you've got to find your point of difference mm -hmm. and stay front of mind. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the key to it, really. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think you can say you got no competition, mm -hmm. but if you can find that edge that gives you the extra percent, then that makes a massive mm -hmm. difference. And you're right, in the case of uh, Pimlico plumbers, you know, I mean, there's thousands of competitors, mm -hmm. but he realised if he wanted to charge slightly premium prices, if mm -hmm. he wanted to be the name that people remembered. Yep. Um, and now with technology, it's even harder to, to stand out. So, you know, if you're Googling plumber, mm -hmm. that's an expensive keyword to search for. So it becomes very difficult to get your visibility. So what do you do? You build your brand so that people Google Pimlico plumbers, not plumbers. Mm. And not only does, is that brilliant because they're directly looking for you, it's saving you a lot of money. And also, you know, one thing, and this is holding if it's not about Charlie Mullins, but I'm using it as an example. Um, what about aligning yourself with the brands? Because again, they went for high-end clients, right? And all around is obviously that picture of celebrities and everything else. Um, you know, is it important to align yourself with other brands to help grow your brand? And kind of, is there any advice you could give around doing that? What do you mean Get, by getting in the getting in the right getting in the right circles effectively? Because if you if you're piggybacking off the back of somebody else's brand, it's going to profile your brand, yes. right? Yeah, you've got to find a brand that aligns to your value. I mean, to give sort of high-profile examples, you know, think of Adidas or Nike, and how do they stay relevant and cool mm -hmm. when they're 40, 50-year-old companies? They align themselves with the brands that kids love, rappers musicians, restaurants, you know, that's, it's a way to stay fresh. In, in the sort of B2B world, to me, really it's about trust. And people wanna know there's a person behind that brand. Mm -hmm. You've gotta be careful that they like the person they see, otherwise it's detrimental. But, it, it's, you know, in construction, as in, as, as in any industry, people want reliability, they want trust, they want value, they wanna know they're not gonna get ripped off. So anything that your personal brand can do to help hammer that message home is going to make a difference. Fantastic. Now, the old saying, um, there's no such thing about as bad PR. Is that true in your experience? You should probably answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, um, attention. In, I mean, but I, see, I see people now, funnily enough, you know, becoming way more controversial just to get the attention. Well, that's the you know, fight for noise, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what I would say, I mean, people ask me that question mm -hmm. all the time. Why are you doing PR? You're doing it to make a difference to your business. Don't do anything for the sake of doing it. And I learned that from Lord Sugar, to be fair. When I used to think I was being clever in the early days and I've got this opportunity, I've got that opportunity, and he'd say, no, no, no doesn't use a lot of words, it's always short and to the point. And then one day he sent me an email, which I've still got, because it was just a valuable lesson to me. And he said something along the lines of, don't get demoralized that I keep saying no, one day I'll say yes. And the reason I say no is because I've got nothing to promote at, at this particular moment in time. So if you apply that to something like The Apprentice, someone goes on the show, they win it. Sometimes the business isn't ready to announce. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do, how we're going to launch it. And I've got 
you know, the UK media off the back of the final, driving me mad, can we interview them, can we speak to them? And I've learned there's no point until I've got a website to direct them to or a business for them to phone or something for them to buy or a service for them to be aware of, why would I waste that publicity just for the sake of publicity? So is all PR good PR? Maybe, maybe not. But don't get carried away with the hype of just seeing your name there, your business there, unless there is a call to action. And mm -hmm. I, I would apply that to any client. And often people phone me way too early in their journey and say, let's just start, we've just done a fundraise, let's start talking about it. So, what do you want to achieve? We just want to tell people we've done it, we're really proud. I'm like, yeah, but the business is going to launch in three months. Then we'll tell them. Mm -hmm. And then they've got a business to buy into and be aware of. You don't get a second chance to get that noise. So just think about the timing and sometimes people do get a bit just obsessed with personal branding and just doing stuff and forgetting why they're doing it you know for me every single post i do has a purpose i mean not necessarily like this massive high purpose but there is a reason why i'm doing it to remind people that i'm creative to remind people that i know what i'm doing to tell people which clients i'm w working for very rarely do i just do something for the sake of it and i will never be one of those people that will and I'm not slating people that do, each to their own, but you, you, know, you won't see me in the gym, mainly because I don't go to the gym. You, you won't see what I'm having for breakfast, what I'm having for dinner. You won't see very often personal stuff, girlfriend, kids, that kind of stuff, because I don't believe that anyone cares. You know, that's for my friends, for my family. It's personal to me. It's, it's all business related, and it's all adding value in some respect. Um, and I think that's you know, valuable lessons that a lot of people could learn from because just because a platform is there and it's free doesn't mean you have to use it. And people often say to me, you know, how often should I post on Instagram? Should I do stories? Should I do this? What's the best time? How many times a week should I do it? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just do it whenever you want, whenever's right. If one day you post five times and then you don't do anything for four days, no one is waiting there for your messages. Just make sure what you do do has some form of impact. Otherwise, it just falls into that white noise and it becomes irrelevant and people forget about it and it doesn't achieve what you want it to achieve. Brilliant. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you um, got in touch with... Well, how did the relationship start with you and Lord Sugar? Where did that kick off? So I founded my business in... September 2000 and you know it started pretty humbly well about as humbly as you could get there's two of us with no clients and I had a mate who had a, a business called Telegram Teddies which was like this teddy bear business that you could write the names on and a different outfits he sort of gave us his business and when I say I mean we were getting paid sweet FA mm -hmm. I'd come from a very big company I was looking after Carlsberg, Puma, England football team, MG Rover at the time, Coca-Cola, like massive clients. And then they don't just sort of jump with you. We started with nothing. My business partner, his brother-in-law had a business called Shop Fittings Direct, which did exactly <coughs> what it says on the tin, sort of providing hangers and mannequins. It was about as unglamorous as it could be, but you've got to start somewhere, and that was friends and family. And then one day, we got a phone call out the blue and it was from a guy who was the marketing director of Amstrad. And I don't know if you remember Nick Hewer who 
One was sort of Lord Sugar's sidekick in the early days of The Apprentice before he went on to Countdown. He was a PR guy, and he was, he'd sold his business, was retiring. The thing about personal PR is it's personal. You have to build up trust. And he was retiring, and he'd sort of said to the marketing director, I think these guys, they've just started, they've got a good reputation for what they've done previously. It might be a good time to sort of speak to them. So he was the one I sort of got to thank for it. We pitched for the business. We went so over the top, like we wanted it so badly that we gave them like a Rolls-Royce solution when all they really needed was a Mini. And a couple of days later, I get a phone call. It's like, look, we're not ready for you guys. We're going to go with someone a bit more basic that can just sort of place our products in the media, put the phone down. I was gutted, absolutely gutted. And I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to let this go. Like, you don't get these sort of opportunities, especially at this stage of my company. So, phone so just at first, it was just for Amstrad business, just not for Amstrad. Yeah, so I hadn't met Lord Sugar at all at this stage. So I phoned him back up and said, look, I realise probably we overcomplicated it a little bit because I really want to do it. And please don't let that put you off. Just give us a chance. I, I begged, like I literally begged. Felt sorry for me, <laughs> gave us the business. And then I never really met Lord Sugar. In fact, in the early years, it was my strategy really to stay out of the way from him because I didn't see any benefit of putting myself in front of him. So I just didn't avoid him, but there was, yeah, he was the CEO. There was no reason to really have any engagement with him. Um, and I'd occasionally meet him at a product launch um, or an event that we were doing. And we kind of got to know each other a little bit. You know, I, I would never sort of go out of my way to pitch to him or tell him what I was capable of. But the thing with someone like him is he observed everything and he could see we were doing a good job. And it just kind of gradually built over time. And in 2005, yeah, he spends a lot of time in America. He'd seen The Apprentice on TV there when Donald Trump, if you know him, um, was, was presenting it. And we'd been spending a lot of time with the government trying to educate young people about entrepreneurship. So we would slap round schools, colleges, universities, and we'd hit sort of a few hundred people at a time hopefully inspire them to be entrepreneurs and be entrepreneurial and understand business a bit. Quite hard work, time consuming. He said, if we did this show, we could hit millions of people with that same message in a kind of light, entertaining way where people don't even really necessarily realize that they're being educated on business and what to do, what not to do, where to go wrong. Anyway, we pitched for the show, um, and he got the gig, and 17 years later, <laughs> we're still doing it. But his profile raised, he was, he was well known, I mean, he was, he'd done well, he's achieved a lot of success, but that took his fame to another level and has been an amazing platform to hopefully inspire young people. And people often say like, ah, Apprentice, is it past its sell-by day? It's been going on for so many years, but what they don't realize is there are new generations of young people that see the show for the first time, or maybe the second or third time. I'm probably one of a handful of people that have seen every single episode for the last 
16 shows. There aren't many people like me, hopefully. And have you been involved since the very, very beginning? Yeah. Yeah. And mate, let's give Andrew a massive round of applause for that. I didn't know you were um, part of Amstrad and that you built your way up. So that's a very inspiring story. That's yeah. nice to hear. But it happens slowly because, like yeah. I say, it is, is about trust. If you've got someone doing your personal PR, mm -hmm. you have to trust them. You have to get to know them. We have quite similar working styles, ethics. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, I've made mistakes over the years. Only one or two, but I have made mistakes. But I'll always sort of own up mm -hmm. to them, and you, know, you never bullshit him or kind of try and. Pull the, pull the wolf from, for Andre. I mean, he's not that, he's too sharp. He yeah, doesn't miss a trick. Yeah. But um, that Bullshit radar built, on point. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, learned he knows. that from day he, one. Yeah, he knows. And so now my role really is, is not to PR the show that's done by a sort of entertainment mm -hmm. publicity company, but it's to take on the winner and help them develop their business, build their personal brand, which is about, like you said, mm -hmm. You, get a, you have a persona on the show, you're effectively a TV personality that no one particularly rates, even if you've won it. You know, they still see you as a TV reality show contestant. You have to then evolve them into credible business people. You have to take them away from that sort of shine of, oh, we got tickets for a premiere, oh, someone from Hollyoaks just messaged me on Instagram. Like, shift them away. That's all the stuff that I wanted. <laughs> That's all the stuff you kept me away from. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I, I mean, I'm sure we had this conversation. Yeah. I can't remember specifically, but it's quite hard when you win the show and you see all the people that came second, third, fourth, mm. fifth, going to all these parties mm. and getting pissed and hanging out with yeah. models or whatever they might be doing. And then, you know, a Joseph or whoever it is will be saying, why can't I go to that? Why yeah. can't I do that? You know, and you're like, and then and they're bragging, you know, oh, mm. I've just made a grand for cutting a ribbon at the local mm. Greg's or I've just made 500 quid for having photos at a university. And I'm like, just relax. Don't worry about what they're doing. It's a long game. Like, you're going to win. You will win. But focus on business. You can't be seen to be out there on a red carpet mm. and you've got to establish yourself as a business person. And that's always the strategy we've taken and it's always worked. And all the people that have won it have come out to a degree, you know, apart from the ones Lord Sugar invested in that he saw opportunities from people that weren't winners, you know, the majority of the winners have outperformed anyone else that appeared on the show. And that's my job is to try and keep them on the right track, keep their head down, explain to them the journey and that it's not overnight and what they will achieve if they do a good job. So. Absolutely. And, you know, when I went on that show for me, it was all about it was all about going to build a business that was never going for the five minutes of fame, no. you know, because the business is long term, right? If you can create a successful business and you learn business, you're going to be able to create long term wealth, not the small yes. gigs that you get in the short term. But it definitely is hard. Um, and I think, you know, now I'm 33. I was 25 at the time, especially for people in their mid 20s to get that level of fame in such a short period of time and all of the hype that comes with it to not get distracted, yeah. you know, and go after all of those bells and whistles. And I think I, you know, when you win, it just comes to such an anti-climax and then yeah. it kind of just finishes and then you've got to go back to running a business, but you also want to run the business, but that, uh, that um, attention yeah, and- It's a drug. It's fun, yeah, yeah it was, it's a yeah. real adrenaline buzz. And I, I, I went on a mission to try and chase down that buzz for, for years after to try and find mm. something 
at that level that I could achieve that would give me the same feeling or the same recognition. Yeah. And I think it's really difficult. And I don't know whether the other winners or even people that go on reality TV experience, but they, I know they will have experienced the same thing, but I, don't, I think before you, before you go on and apply for a TV show like that, just knowing that it does have a shelf life <clears throat> And there is a time where it just disappears again, right? Yeah, people don't realise that. And I think you get wrapped up in, yeah, you're on a show and The Apprentice is doing, you know, 10 million viewers an episode. It's massive. And you're walking down the street and people are recognising you. It's, it's a drug. Mm. The role of a good PR person or good management person, I guess I do both roles, is to help manage their expectations. And there's a duty of care to explain to people you know, what it's like, what are the downsides, what are the upsides, and how to play that long game, but you do see it. And of course, there's people that go on the show for the wrong reasons, just to be famous, and they don't really ever want to be a business person, which is kind of okay, you know, it's the whole point of the show, is to, it's, a, it's a process to whittle down to the credible characters. But generally, you know, by the time someone comes out at the end as a winner, these are business people that, you know, yes, they've enjoyed the fame. You'd have to be a bit, I guess, weird to, to not enjoy some aspects of it. But actually, they're there for the opportunity and what Lord Sugar can bring and how they can build longer-term success. But you have to, you know, I, I have to do the same speech, which you might remember, but yep. every single year. And it's, you've got to do it with the same enthusiasm and professionalism. Mm. You know, I've seen it all before. I know everything that can go right mm -hmm. or wrong but you have to explain it to someone like you've never discussed it before and allow them to ask you all the questions and be there for them and guide them. And yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's, and Where do you see um, the future of The Apprentice going? Is it going to change formats? Is it evolving? Is it looking for um, bigger characters to create the entertainment? The truth of it is, as long as it gets the viewers, mm -hmm. No one wants to play with it too much. Mm -hmm. And you look at the format in other countries, um, America, Far East, Australia, they kind of tinkered around with it and made it kind of, I guess, more of a reality show. They've had celebrities, they've had different hosts. The thing about The Apprentice, it's familiarity. And people like familiarity and TV production people don't like to tinker with something that's working. When the ratings drop, that's when they play around with it. But if you look at the last series, did the biggest viewing figures since, I think it was either 2017 or 2018, mm -hmm. everyone's delighted. So yes, they've got to keep up with the times and modernise it, but it's a winning formula. Same as something like I'm a Celebrity, you know, it's 21 years old, I think, or 20 years old, it's even older. I mean, that show hasn't changed since day one because it works. When the ratings start to dip, the show gets ditched or they make changes to it. But up mm -hmm. until that point, it's working. And do you think there's um, an opportunity now for a new style or um, more business shows? I mean, getting back on um, TV, with my own show is something that I'm interested in exploring. I'd love to have my own business show. I've got some ideas that I'm gonna pitch in the next 24 months. Um, do you think there's room for new business shows to come out? Is there enough of an audience? I know you're a big advocate for entrepreneurship. You know, The Apprentice and Dragon's Den have been the two kind of kingpins in the market for a long time. So do you see? I do, but the, 
if you look at sort of what's happened, mm -hmm. lots of people, there's been lots of formats that mm -hmm. just haven't worked. Branson had one, yeah. Gordon Ramsay's just had one which was not too subtle, a sort of play on The Apprentice. Like they don't, they haven't Who's that, worked. Gordon Ramsay? Yeah. Was that a UK one? I missed that one. Yeah, oh. yeah, sort of, I was like a, I didn't even didn't watch it, but yeah. all I know is everyone kept saying it was a rip-off of The Apprentice. I think yeah. it was some sort of search for a chef, but the format was mm -hmm. very, very similar. So people have tried, everyone's desperate. There is an appetite, massive appetite for it, but no one seems to have found a formula that's worked mm -hmm. to any degree, but they're still trying. I mean, it's... And do you, um, do you have, what formula do you think would work for, in your experience? What is it that people want from... What do, they, what do they enjoy in business shows? What are they looking for? In my personal opinion, it's got, you've got to find the balance between entertainment and education. Mm -hmm. And that's why The Apprentice works. I think with Dragon's Den, it, it works. Dragon's Den is less entertainment, but it's more, you know, you know you're learning, but you're enjoying watching it. And we've all sat there thinking, would I invest? What questions would I ask? How would I rip that business apart? What's this one going to? You know, you you engage with it, and it's the same with The Apprentice. You know, you're watching it, and you're thinking, "Oh, you fucking idiot! Why didn't you do that?" And that's part of the enjoyment of it. So it can't be too serious. Yeah, you know, no one wants to watch an educational video. It's edu it's education blended with entertainment. So mm -hmm. you're learning whilst you're enjoying it, and that's the key thing. And I don't know why no one has has ever or in recent times managed to get it right. Mm -hmm. um, in my mind, look, I, I'm not actually going to pitch you my idea because you'll nick it. <laughs> but I, I think there is an opportunity. I promise I won't. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, I, just, I think there's, with technology, there is an opportunity to do something a little bit more interactive. And the same as I just described, like everyone sitting there watching it, thinking, what would I do? How would I do it? I'd do better that's good, that's bad. I, I think now with the advent of crowdfunding, with the advent of social media, which allows you to interact, there is some sort of format which would allow the audience to participate directly with the show. And that's probably where I would take it, but I'm not a TV producer and mm. no one would listen to me. But um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's about the innovation. And if yep. you look at... You know, whilst the strengths of shows like Dragon's Den and The Apprentice are in the fact it stayed true to a format, there's a, the world has moved on in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of technology, in terms of the mm -hmm. type of people that are success stories. So you can, it can be adapted to a younger audience. Mm -hmm. But you've got to remember with, the, with these shows, the biggest audience by a mile is 18 to 24 year olds, young people that want to learn. And I think they like it because they can grasp it. You don't have to be an intellectual. Um, in the same way, my mum can watch it and have an opinion on it. No different to my opinion. So that's kind of the beauty of it. But there, there must be an opportunity to sort of move it on in terms of having a format that is just, I think, uses technology more is the key to it. Amazing, good stuff. Now. Um Given the uh, uh, guys in the room some advice around um, getting in the press, as a business, what are the sort of things that you would recommend that they do? Let's say local press. So what, 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 what the publications want? Like what, what stories have you got to take and what are they looking for? 
So if you break down any story, there's only really maybe, I don't know, I'll say 10 different things that are true to any story you see. So it can be a story about human interest, can be a story that's related to celebrity, it can be a story that's related to controversy, it could be invented controversy, um, it can be a story related to the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world and where you fit in. It's got to be what I would say is man bites dog, not dog bites man. And what I mean by that is something that's slightly unexpected. If you're looking at regional press, first thing is, how are you relevant to that region? You know, what are you contributing in terms of employment, in terms of new developments, in terms of innovation? Building a relationship with, you know, the, the beauty of local press is it's local, so they understand the areas they're covering, and you can build a relationship with the media. So even things that wouldn't necessarily be of interest to national press will still be a locally relevant story. If you've got interesting customer stories, if you've got interesting staff stories, you know, that, I think human interest is often the most powerful tool to talk to national press about. Think about the power of imagery and good photos. You know, what's happened with regional media is the resources of much more limited than they were this time five years ago, ten years ago. They're desperate for stories. They're desperate for photos. They're desperate for video content. Make it easy for them. And have an opinion on things that are relevant to your local region. Local radio is such a powerful PR tool which sometimes gets overlooked. But offering yourself up as a spokesperson. So, I don't know, to use a basic example, the budget, you know, what, what does that mean to your local region, to your business? Are you worried about it as a local business owner? Are you worried about the cost of living crisis? Are you worried about the increased cost of materials and all the shit that Brexit's caused? These are all things that you've got an opinion on that are valid to your business and your region. So make sure your local media, you know, know who you are and know that you're there as a spokesperson. And what's the best way um, um, for a business to establish those connections? Would you say it's just ringing the local press and saying, I'd love to comment on stuff, I'm a local business owner, or would it be just writing up press releases and hitting their you know, info at news desk email consistently? How do you establish um, yourself as a voice? You've got to build a relationship. And in its simplest form, what I would probably do is write to, for a start, understand the media that you're approaching. So, you know, the biggest mistake a lot of PRs make is they don't read the publications. And if I was to phone up, I don't know, The Sun and speak to a journalist and say, I've got a story about Joseph, and you might say, well, do you actually read what I write? Like, why would I want to write about Joseph? I need to know who the right journalist is, what they write about, and why Joseph would be interesting to them and find that hook. So why are you gonna be interesting to them? Well, for a start, you're an employer in their region, you're a successful business person, you've got a view on things that are important to your region, and start to build that relationship. So in its simplest form, I would message them, say, I know you're a busy man, I read the whatever, Watford Gazette every week, love, you know, love your columns, 
I know I'm not probably number one of your priority list, but if ever you want someone to talk about, you know, business, the economy, what's going on, here's a small paragraph about our business. You know, we employ X people. You might know this building project. We did that. That and just start to build that relationship slowly. If you read something that's of interest and you've got an opinion of it, write. I read the piece you wrote today, or I listened to your show today on the radio about X. If ever you want someone to comment, I know you had Joe Bloggs on today talking about it, but if you want to change your voice, I'd be happy to do that. Just do it. It's, it's, it's very simple. It's just building relationships. Sometimes people are a bit sort of in fear of PR, think it's like a dark art and don't really understand it. It's not. It's just building relationships and explaining why something is of interest to them. So just think about who they're broadcasting to and think how you can add some value to that. It's absolutely brilliant advice, um, you know, and, and, for, and for everybody in the room that wants to get that um, PR and, you know, it's free advertising. You know, they are looking for um, people to do stories on and to um, speak about certain things. So don't be shy of doing that outreach and make, you know, and you've got good stuff to talk about. So locally, you're able to add value to um, local press and they're always looking for um, stories to pick up. So, you know, it's absolutely a phenomenal advice. And I do think people are a little bit scared of it because it's unknown. And, you know, as you've just said, fantastic. It's just simple. It's just about creating the relationships with the right people. And once you've got an established relationship, you know, you can then just start pinging them everything. And then sometimes they'll do a story for you, which is indirectly an advert. As long as you fluff it up with a bit of, um, you know, something else, you can get your sometimes websites you know, you in there. You don't even have and, to do that. Sometimes. Yeah. sometimes you don't even have to fluff it up. But, mm -hmm. you know, you could... It's not necessarily appropriate to every business in this mm -hmm. room, but so, you know, sometimes you could say, oh, we'd like to run a competition or we'd like to do this, we'd like to do that. Um, you know, lots of businesses that I represent, are, you know, they, they, they're quite dry, serious businesses, but yep. we create campaigns that are of interest. So it might be a recruitment firm where we do an award ceremony to find the rising stars of the industry. And so we sort of create our own content. Nice. And we know out of those hundred rising stars that enter, each one of them has a region. So Joe from Peterborough is a great story for the Peterborough Gazette. You know, like it's, you've got a hundred different stories with your name attached to it. So you can be a bit creative. You don't need to kind of come up with Coca-Cola style campaigns, but you can use your, you know, if you were to do a local heroes award or sometimes it's when you go back to what you were saying about association one way you can associate is if there is local charities or local football team or things you can support you can start to build a profile that way there's, there's all different ways I mean the journalists that you know I know today some of them are contacts I mean I spoke yesterday to a journalist at the Sun who placed my first ever story when I was on work experience in 1995 she, I, you never forget your first story in a national paper. She gave it to me, and I'm still talking to her all these years later. You know, you, you keep those relationships if you work well, and it's about making it easy for them. It, journalists are lazy, and the easier you can make their life, because they're short on time, short on resource, the more likely they are to want to use your quotes and come to you. I mean, I get asked for shit all the time, and a lot of it is irrelevant. At the moment, for some reason, I'm the spokesperson on how Matt Hancock got on in I'm a Celebrity. 
don't really know how I found myself in that role, but everyone wants to know, was it good PR? Did he do the right thing? And journalists are lazy. I, you know, I did one piece about three weeks ago talking about it. Every day I get a phone call from a different journalist. What do you think about Matt Hancock today? What do you think? And I didn't even really have an opinion three weeks ago, but the only reason they're doing that is because they're lazy and they're reading a piece in the Times or the Telegraph or the Sun or wherever it was, first of all, and they see my name. Oh, we'll use him for a quote. I ha I've, I've also had the same with Kate Moss for about 10 years. I once said a quote on Kate Moss. For 10 years, people phoned me <laughs> asking me my opinion on everything Kate Moss did. It's just the way journalists work. So if you can get yourself associated with being a spokesperson for your industry, for your region, just as a general business person from your area, journalists will come back to you again and again and again. And the trick is, wherever you can, to try and say yes. You know, I did an interview walking down the road here today, needed it like a hole in the head. But I just, you know, I want people to know that if they phone me, I'm there to help mm. them. Because also I will be asking them favours. I know that I'll be going back to that person talking about Matt Hancock that I didn't really want to talk to and say, you know, I was there when you were on deadline and I gave you a quote you could use. Now I need a favour from you. Got this guy, Joseph. He's got a story. Will you write about it? That's how it works. Just trading. Trading and being useful and helpful and efficient. And you can build those. You don't need to be a PR professional to do that. It's natural to me. It might not be natural to you, but it is just a relationship thing. And you're all good at building relationships. You just think about it, how you would build a relationship with a customer, a client, a business. Media is no different. Nothing to be scared of. Don't feel intimidated. They're not looking to trick you out or get you to say something stupid. It's, you're just there to be useful to them and you've got to just show them how you are relevant to them and then the rest of it is plain sailing and the more you do, it's just a snowball. This is fantastic advice. Thank you very much. Um, okay, cool. So what is it that you're up to now then, Andrew? What do you do now? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, lots, actually. I mean, I, well, so I had my business. I told you I sold it. Four years later, they gave us a bit back. I stayed there for seven years or so. To be honest, I think I was coasting a little bit. And I just... There was something nagging me. I never liked to say I was bored, because I was not bored. But mentally, I just didn't feel like I, w I just had an itch to scratch. I don't know what mm -hmm. you call it. So after two years of procrastinating about it, I decided I would step back <coughs> from the business and go non-exec, which <coughs> basically means I don't do the nine to five and have staff driving me mad all day long, um, and set up my own business. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew what I didn't want to do. What I didn't want to do was have a business that employed hundreds of people because I couldn't deal with it anymore. I just wanted to do stuff on my terms. Um, and I would do that by having associates. I realized my value was my black book. And whether that be journalists, celebrities, business people, TV producers, whatever it might be, I built up these amazing connections. I just had to sort of figure out how to monetize it um, because I'd spent years and years and years doing favors for people. And I didn't mind because I'm always of the opinion sort of what goes around comes around. But yeah, mate, can you recommend me an ad agency? Can you tell me who the best person is to do this? Do you know this agent? Could you get them to... 
that was my life for years, and I never thought anything of it. And then all mm. of a sudden, I sort of realised there's got to be a way to monetise it. So now my business is sort of, I guess, four areas. I might think of a fifth when, as I start going through them. So one is buying and selling companies. So I've used my knowledge of who the best agencies in the marketing and technology space are. And I either work on the buy side, so for big sort of multinationals, people like WPP or Omnicom or Publicis Group, when they want to find the best, best agencies that don't necessarily have a for sale sign on their door, I find them and I persuade them to sell. And then on the sell side, it's agencies, all people that I sort of know, grown up with, that want an exit, I help them find a buyer. So that's one nice. bit. Second bit is sitting as a non-exec or a board advisor on businesses, um, which I love because I can use my knowledge that I've built up over the years to help them grow and succeed. I sit on half a dozen different businesses or so, some agencies, some tech businesses, soft drinks business, basically things where I, th I can add value and help them. Third bit is as a what's called an intermediary. So you have clients like Goldman Sachs, Coca-Cola, that want to figure out what agencies they need and how to, how to find the right agencies. And I run their pitch processes to help them find whatever it might be, a PR agency, social media agency, digital agency. Fourth bit is a bit of consulting and a bit of PR. I shouldn't forget Lord Sugar because he is still very much part of, of what I do. Working with him, I've sort of opened up lots of contacts and people that I know, and I've kind of found myself, I guess, being a bit of an agent or booker for business people. So whether that is like, a, I don't know, Karen Brady, Stephen Bartlett, Andrew Neal, people like this that have agents, I'm not an agent, but clients sort of come to me and say, we're looking for a high-profile business person to help with our event, to speak, at things like this, and I'll help put work their way. And then the last bit, I, I don't even know how many I've said now, it's definitely more than three or four. But <laughs> This is your five. This, this is, is my last fifth. one, I promise, <laughs> until I think of the next. I just, when I stepped back from Frank, I, I wanted to give something back because I felt like I owed so much to, to this career that has been amazing for me and I've loved every single second of it. So I set myself a challenge of spending 20% of my time helping businesses, charities, good causes. So I've done a few different things in that period. Um, the one that I'm probably most proud of is um, helping raise the money for St Paul's Cathedral to build a permanent COVID memorial within the walls of St Paul's. Um, and I worked with um, Sir Lloyd Dorfman, who's the guy who founded Travelex and is behind the office group and stuff like that, who was very passionate about it, but was struggling to sort of get the awareness and the attention and raise the money. So we worked together, we got the Daily Mail on board in terms of a big sort of fundraising campaign, and we raised, I think, initially 2.3 million, and then now we're up to closer to 3 million. The memorial's now built, it's there. We're now looking to extend it with a sort of digital memorial. So I've been doing that, been doing some work for charities, cancer charities, a charity called Grief Encounter. And for me, I, I sometimes struggle to do the 20%, and I wouldn't like to say, uh, there's another thing that I do, which is a, a record label, which was set up by 
Craig Fenton, who's the COO of Google, and he wanted to use technology to help young black underprivileged kids who couldn't find a way to break into the music industry. How could we be disruptive and use technology to help them achieve that? So we've done that, and we're building that into a production company to take the same principles and do it for TV and film. So I, I've tried to sort of spend some of my time giving something back, which is really important to me at this stage of, of my career, and it's always hard because you never have enough hours in the day, and sometimes you do have to focus on the things that put food on the table, but mm. it's actually really nice to not always have to charge money to do something and to try and use your skill to do something good. And the last bit, which isn't really, it's just a life thing, mm -hmm. really, but I wanted to spend more time with my kids, and I think, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you put everything into your business and you work every hour of the day. And I reflected on sort of my career and just thought, probably haven't been the best dad. I don't pick my kids up enough. I've missed too many football matches, Christmas concerts. And they grow up and once they've grown up, they're not kids anymore. So it was my mission to sort of be in control of my own time. And I work like a lunatic still. I mean, I'm a sort of self-confessed workaholic and I love it. That's why I do it. But I'll take, you know, every Friday afternoon off, every Tuesday afternoon off to be with my kids. I've never, haven't missed a football match since. Yeah, I go to every single game, home and away. That is probably the biggest thing that I'm proud of, which sound, might sound stupid. I don't know if it does sound stupid or not, but you have to put things in perspective and try and keep everyone happy, but not, I never want to look back and regret, shit, I've had a good career, but my kids don't even know who I yeah. am. I didn't want to be that person. So hopefully I'm not. Smashed it, my man.